0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 76 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Tick TickWise, an interview with April Nil boitano My name is Richard Johansson, And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is April Nil boitano April Nil boitano is the president of TickWise Education, a not-for-profit that aims to increase children's awareness of ticks. Ms. Neil boitano is aware of having been bitten by ticks on at least three separate occasions. After her first bite at the age of five years old, she experienced a strange set of symptoms that progressed as she got older. She had rashes, hives, and terrible sinus symptoms. Throughout her journey, doctors never took her seriously. Ms. Boitano was misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and depression. Ms. Boitano eventually received the Lyme diagnosis after many tests came back negative. Unfortunately, Ms. Boitano was not the only member of her family touched by Lyme. April's father suffered from Lyme carditis prior to his death, and her children contracted Lyme in utero. One day, while she was working as a substitute teacher, a student confided in her about his struggles with Lyme disease. It struck a chord with Ms. Nil Boitano, and she decided to develop a curriculum about tick bite prevention.
1: Hi, April, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, We're blessed to have you, and we would like you to please uh, share with our audience a little about your background. Where do you live? What do you do? What is your relationship status? And then we'll take it from there.
1: Okay. So I live on the east end of Long Island, and I'm a master of education. I'm the president of TickWise Education, which is a local nonprofit that educates uh, children and adults on uh, tick bite prevention. I'm married, have a couple of kids. (laughs)
0: So, um, are you currently teaching in addition to working with TickWise?
1: Uh, No. So, I I just manage the nonprofit and then I have several other things that I do on the side.
0: April, I'd like you to walk back to when you first started feeling what you now know to be the symptoms of your tick disease.
1: So, I would say that it probably began for me as a child um this was something that came up when i was probably about five years old i used to love to climb trees we had wild blueberries in our backyard and uh, i used to spend a lot of time in the woods as a child and i remember coming in with something stuck to me and my mother had to call that she called up the hospital she's like i there's some kind of bug on my daughter and i can't get it off and after that tick bite is when i developed severe allergies so my mom had taken me to nine different doctors across the island, trying to figure out what was going on with my health. And eight out of nine said, we have no idea what's wrong with this child. And the knife doctor said, this child has allergies. And from then on, I became a human pincushion and have had more allergy tests and allergy shots and shots of cortisone and rounds of prednisone than possibly any other human out here.
0: So, April, where did you spend your childhood? W- was that on Long Island as well? Yes, out in the Hamptons. And what did you know about ticks and tick diseases during your childhood?
1: Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I just knew that I was always very sickly. And uh, even my senior year of high school, you know, my my uh, my Lyme and co-infections primarily manifest as sinusitis. So, so I was always, you know, at the allergist, at the ENT, Um, getting steroids, getting antibiotics, just, you know, being constantly ill. But my senior year, they said, if you miss one more day, we like legally can't even graduate you. So even if I was sick, I stuck it out and I finally did graduate.
0: So how did this tick disease affect your childhood socially? Were you known as the sick kid? Did you have any uh, social limitations where Because you weren't capable of doing everything other children are able to do, you perhaps didn't have as many friends, what impact did your tick disease have on your childhood?
1: You know, it's really hard to remember because I think, you know, to some extent it really does affect your memory, just being in a constant fog. It just felt like a constant allergic fog. Like I always had this cytokine storm going on where I was always sneezing and hacking and socially though, I don't think it impacted me as much as it might have, I mean, because people tended to notice that whatever it was that was making me sick, no one else seemed to catch it.
0: Do you think there were any people in your life, whether they be family or friends who were sick of you being sick?
1: Oh my God. Yes. My sister hated me. <laughs> she was like, what is wrong with you? You know? Yeah, basically that was it though. I mean, my mom, my mom and dad were very good to me. They were great parents. And uh, you know, my mom just shuttled me back and forth to, uh, to doctors and such, and, you know, they did their best to try and help me.
0: Did your tick disease have an impact on your academic performance during your pre-high school graduation days?
1: You know, amazingly, not much. Um, I guess, you know, in spite of all the inflammation and cytokines and, you know, runny noses and such, I still graduated, you know, with a 90-something average. So I was able <laughs> to, thank God I'm intelligent, so I was able to kind of make up for all the missed days just by being smart.
0: How many different doctors did you see during your childhood that missed the proper diagnosis of a tick disease?
1: Yeah, at least 100. Basically, it was just always told this is, this is allergies because that's how it manifested. I mean, you know, I probably had co-infections as well back then, So, you know, it just kind of manifested as rashes and hives and, and sneezing and coughing and sinus infections.
0: Do you recall having bitten by being bitten by ticks more than just the one occasion that you had described during your childhood? And I'm asking you to just focus on your childhood.
1: No, just that one, just that one, because it was something that, you know, like my mom was really upset and she called the hospital. Literally, she's like, I just don't know what to do. It won't come off. And then, of course, they said, get some tweezers and pull it off that way. And then, you know, she did get it off. But that was really the genesis of me just being a sickly child.
0: So now, let's move forward to your post-high school graduation life. What did you do after you graduated from
1: high school? So I went to college down south, and then I ended up traveling with a band for a while. Um, My first college degree is vocal performance. And so I was involved in the music scene, but you know I found that traveling really wasn't for me, so I ended up coming back to Long Island and moving back in with my parents for a while to sort of get my bearings and decide what else I was going to do after three years as a music major and I got a job at a uh, local medical practice as a secretary I was there for a while, and then I applied at uh, Long Island University where I ended up getting a bachelor's in psychology.
0: I understand that you had a second memorable tick encounter during that window of time in your life.
1: Right. So that, that's when things really got bad for me um, as far as my health goes, because I had kind of habituated to just living on, you know, Benadryl and Claritin and such, and, uh, you know, the occasional round of antibiotics or steroids. But uh, when I was working at the Hanson Medical Center, I was also cleaning chair houses at night. And so I worked a full shift one day and then I went to go clean a house out in Watermill. And I remember it very distinctly. It was a very horrible experience, all in all. I went to put on the rubber gloves from under the kitchen sink to get started on cleaning bathrooms. And um, I put my hand into a rubber glove and there was a female deer tick, adult female deer tick in there. Because of course, ticks that are found inside the house uh, will desiccate within 24 to 48 hours unless they find a source of moisture. So this particular tick had found some water left over in these rubber gloves and took up residence inside the glove and so you know of course I didn't look inside the rubber gloves I just put my hand in there and then I felt something crawling around and it did bite me on my wrist and I thought it was a spider so I slapped it as hard as I could and then I pulled off the uh, the glove, and I see this thing inside, and of course, it's got eight legs, and it's brown and small and about the size of a spider, and I think, oh, this rotten little spider, and I try to smush it, and I can't, and that was the thing that kind of stuck with me. I'm like, why can't I kill this stupid spider, you rotten little thing, you just bit me, and I'm trying to smush it, and I can't, so I just wrap it inside of a uh, tissue, and I flush it down the toilet. I go about cleaning the house, I'm feeling tired, I'm feeling sick, finally finish around midnight, and I'm driving back, and I'm just having like, lights flashing, my, my heart is rapidly beating, I'm sweating, I'm feeling really, really bad. But ironically, even though I'm working at a medical center, I have no health insurance. So I'm like, I ain't going to the hospital, I'll be fine. So I go home, eventually I do fall asleep. And then I go to work the next day, I believe it was, and I go and see one of the doctors because now I've developed this crazy rash. And uh, they asked me, you know, what happened? It looks like an allergic reaction because this is, you know, coming from where I've come from. I think, you know, I think I'm like the most allergic person on the planet. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm having an allergic reaction to a spider bite. So that's what it was diagnosed as. This is like 1994. I think Dr. Cairns actually did ask me, was it a tick? And I think I said, well, what is a tick? I don't even know what that is. And so uh, I was treated for an allergic reaction to a spider bite. Um, I had a swollen arm from my wrist to my elbow, a rash from my wrist to my elbow. Uh, It was on steroids and amoxicillin. And uh, that went on for about a month.
0: I'd like to walk back to the tick bite. So- Mm -hmm. How long was the tick biting you before you discovered it and ultimately removed it from your arm?
1: Only a couple of seconds. So, this was not an attachment issue. This was me slapping it, literally pushing, you know, like basically encouraging it, almost like a ketchup bottle, you know, take all your pathogens and just go ahead and dump them in there, you know, kind of slapping it from the outside. So, you know, theoretically that shouldn't have happened, but clearly whatever was in that tick, I was able to get it within a couple of seconds.
0: So you also described the type of tick that had bitten you. How do you know that the tick that was biting you was a brown female deer tick?
1: It was, I know it was an adult female deer tick because if it was smaller, it would have been harder to mistake it for a spider. But it was roughly the size of like a small wolf spider, but it wasn't segmented like a spider either you know the, the spider has the two distinct segments so I just remember trying to kill it because I'm mad that it's bitten me and I'm trying to smush it with different things and it still you know is moving around so that's when I decided I was going to drown it by flushing it down the toilet but you know now you know knowing what I know and, and teaching the program I teach I'm quite certain that was a female deer tick
0: so you believe that you were, you came in contact with the pathogens, not because it was attached to you, but because you hit it and squeezed what was in the body of the tick when you tried to kill
1: it? That's what I believe. Because I mean, my, my arm, you know, and that's medically documented. I mean, it was covered in a rash and swollen like a sausage. It was really bad. And yeah, I mean, it, it, I put my hand in the glove. I felt something crawling, I felt something bite me, and then I smacked it and I pulled it out and then I, I squeezed it with my fingers, which is the last thing you want to do when a tick is biting you is to squeeze it because that is how you unintentionally squeeze the pathogens from the tick gut into your body through the hypostome, which is the, um, the straw that the tick is drinking your blood through.
0: So I just, I just want to be clear about this. So you believe the tick was attached. And then when you squeezed the tick in your effort to right. kill it, you believe that you were able to squeeze the gut material into your body yeah. through the attachment. Yeah. Yep. Now, just because it's interesting, I do want to stay on the storyline that we're on, but do you believe that even if the tick was not attached, if you had squeezed it, you could have suffered illness from some of the pathogens in the tick? Even if it's not attached,
1: if it's not attached, no. Yeah. I mean, I, you might get a superficial type of skin rash, but I, I think that you know it's more that it's you know it's it's a needle. The hypostome is a needle that goes you know into your dermal layers. So I don't think so. I'm not. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I don't know. Like if things can come in from the outside, I know that in general, you know, um, hand washing is it, it prevents sickness. So I would say, you know, that uh, God designed the body to be smart and that if things get on the outer surface of your skin, that in general if you wash them off, it should be fine.
0: So now let's fast forward to the point that you're at. So you're you go to the doctor, you are not diagnosed with the tick disease and you're given both antibiotics and you're given steroids. Can right. you describe yeah. what impact the combination therapy had on the developing tick disease that you had?
1: You know, it it, it wasn't helping. <laughs> so, and of course, I'm working at a doctor's office, so I'm complaining and complaining. And then of course, once I finished the steroids, the inflammation goes nuts. And um, I actually walked across the street and went to the hospital one day uh, because I was convinced I was having a heart attack. And I went in and the radiologist asked me after he took my x-ray, he goes, were you in a car accident? No. Why? He goes, did you have like a uh, an airbag explode in your chest? I'm like, no. And he goes, do you play contact sports like football? No. And he goes, oh, I, I, I said, well, why? He goes, well, this is just very strange. I've never seen it before. Seen what? And he goes, well, you have acute costochondritis and you don't appear to have like pneumonia or anything. And so I thought that maybe you were in an accident what's costochondritis He goes, that's when the tissues in between your ribs swell so badly that they're pushing on the pericardium around the heart and it makes you feel like you know you're having chest pains like you are and i'm like oh well no and he's like well i have no explanation but anyway that's that's the assessment is that you have acute costochondritis okay well what do i do for that Steroids and anti-inflammatories. So here I go again with more steroids. So of course, steroids being immunosuppressive, this all was just kind of driving whatever illnesses I had acquired from that tick sort of deeper into my body.
0: How did your tick disease develop from there?
1: Well, the primary diagnoses were A, fibromyalgia. I'm like, I just, my whole body hurts. Like, why does my whole body hurt? I'm in my 20s. And so I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Then I was also diagnosed with chronic fatigue, which admittedly I had. But there is a definite correlation between chronic fatigue and borreliosis because borrelia themselves are immunosuppressive due to the fact that they are pleomorphic organisms that shed triacyl lipoproteins. So they undergo antigenic variation. They change their outer surface proteins. And then as they do that, they do something called BLEB. And then these fungal antigens, pam molecule, whatever you want to call it, they go in, out into the body and they become immunosuppressive. They, they um, suppress toll-like receptors on the cell. So you're actually producing less antibodies. So you know, I was immunosuppressed both from being subjected to just years and years of steroids and then also just from the Borrelia themselves. So I didn't test positive. So because the testing for Lyme disease looks for an immunological response, it doesn't look for the pathogen itself. It looks for evidence of fighting the pathogen from your immune system. So God forbid your immune system doesn't work properly. You do not, the sickest people don't test positive for Lyme because they're not mounting enough of an antibody response to it to, you know, get the five out of five bands that the CDC wants them to get on that Western blot test.
0: Okay, so hold on there, because you're getting to some really important stuff that I want to make sure that we discuss in some more detail, but I want to discuss this in the context of what's happening in your life. So you're, you're back in college, you're at LIU, uh, you're working in a medical office, and you're, and you're working, in addition to that, doing some other work. And you're now getting sicker and sicker and sicker. So I'm assuming this is beginning to have an impact on your health in a way that your childhood challenges did not. So how did this impact your ability to work? How did this impact your ability to pursue your secondary education? And what impact was this having on your social life?
1: I ended up quitting the medical center. And really, it definitely had something to do with it because I feel like people thought I was faking. You know, they're like, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> they going to treat me like my sister. Like, what the heck is wrong with you? Like, why won't you get better? Like, it was my fault that I still felt sick. So I just kind of felt really unhappy there and un- misunderstood. And But, you know, that that was sort of a theme in my life as far as doctors go. So I just kind of took it on the chin as usual and uh, moved on, got accepted, and, and began my studies at LIU. Um, to get my degree in psychology because of course, at this point in my life, everyone's telling me you're imagining your sickness. So I'm like, okay, what's wrong with me that I wanna be sick? Like, why am I a hypochondriac? (laughs) Which to me right now is like hysterically funny um, because clearly I'm not, clearly there was an actual problem. So I ended up working in a music store and I became like the manager of like this record store and was getting my degree and was also singing in a band. So, you know, as usual, you know, for me, I just convinced myself as well that it was all in my head, and that I just needed to keep going. So, you know, I kind of have an autopilot mode that I think I pretty much been in most of my life. So I just kind of ignored my symptoms and just kept going.
0: So April, just so that I'm clear and understanding what you just shared with me, you were working in a medical office, the people who are supposed mm-hmm. to be diagnosing illnesses and yeah. the people who are supposed to be the most sympathetic to those of us when yeah. we're sick. And they treated you so poorly that you quit your job?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nobody believed me. Like it was my fault that I didn't feel better.
0: But April, that created enough doubt in your own mind that it then took you on a different educational path where you began to study psychology to find out whether you really were nuts? Yeah. And when you went through this separate educational path and you were studying psychology, did it become more clear to you than ever that you were physically ill and not mentally ill?
1: No, actually, I, I thought, well, gee, I'm, I'm depressed. That's, that was pretty much, I said, well, they're right. I'm just depressed. I didn't, I, you know, I don't really think that I allowed myself to entertain the fact that everyone else was wrong. So I think I just kind of owned it like, okay, well, it must be me. I'm the problem. So let me figure out how to best fix me. So I went to a lot of different doctors. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, uh, and depression. And I guess, you know, you just, I just kind of kept going along. I kept getting sinus infections and that became, you know, the theme continued of having chronic sinusitis. So eventually I was convinced that I should have surgery and, you know, fix my deviated septum and kind of deal with that issue the best that I could. So I did go have surgery and this is about like ten years after the bite, just because I'm in there so much that they're like, you must have polyps and you must have like some really bad stuff going on in your sinuses. Let's go in and roto rooter everything out and hopefully this will all stop. So I did have the surgery, and unfortunately after the surgery, I developed the smell of rotting flesh inside my nose. So I went on about four months worth of different antibiotics. We tried a lot of different things. Um, one thing to the next. And every time I came off of the antibiotics, the smell would come back. And the surgeon eventually after about four months of different antibiotics, he goes, listen, there's nothing more we can give you here. He goes, you must be imagining the smell. I said, imagine. He goes, yeah, it's called miasma. And miasma is when you're like imagining a smell that's not actually there. Maybe we nicked, you know, some sort of nerve during the procedure and, you know unfortunately this is something you're just going to have to live with so you know me thinking i'm always the problem i'm like okay well uh, um i guess so so uh, you know i said well my husband and i you know we really want to have children and you know is this my asthma thing going to be a problem for me getting pregnant no no you're fine go ahead and get pregnant so a couple of months later this horrible smell in my nose i get pregnant and my health completely falls apart so um You know, pregnancy is also immunosuppressive. So basically, you know, whatever my body had been able to cope with, it was no longer able to cope. And I became very, very sick. Of course, the same ENT doctor told me, you're imagining it and there's nothing wrong with you. So finally, I went to a different doctor and I said, can you put like a Q-tip up my nose or something and send it to the lab? Oh, sure. So they send it out. And my primary calls me in and says, you need to come in right away. And so I go in and he says, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you have sepsis. You've grown out five different pathogens from your nasal swab culture that we took. He said, and one of them is a nosocomial necrotizing bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So breaking that down, nosocomial necrotizing bacteria means hospital acquired flesh eating bacteria. So, I've got this flesh eating bacteria up in my sinus. I also developed something called the recirculation phenomenon in my right cheek sinus, where this basically snot was just looping from one hole to the other and never really coming out. It was just kind of festering in there. So, turns out I wasn't imagining <laughs> the smell of rotting flesh. I actually had a, a germ that was rotting the flesh in my sinuses.
0: Okay, let's pause there for a minute because there's a lot you just shared with us that I think we have to visit in a little bit more detail. So you're the kind of gal who's just sort of accepting that you may not be sick, that it may be psychological. You're studying Mm -hmm. psychology now as a graduate student, yet you keep going from doctor to doctor to doctor. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. what is it about you that even though you had doubts about whether or not you were really sick, you still had the strength to seek help from other medical professionals. Why, why did you do that if you doubted whether or not you were really physically sick?
1: You know, I guess just the reality of, you know, the somatic complaints. Well, especially when you've got like, you know, green stuff coming out of your nose. You can't just go, I'm imagining this green stuff, you know, or you're coughing up blood. There were things that I absolutely, you know, could not explain away as psychiatric
0: Let's talk about what's going on with you socially. How is your family dealing with this constant illness that you seem to have all the way from your childhood? Were they getting tired of you being sick? Were they doubting you? Or were they still staying in your corner and supporting you in in you pursuing a diagnosis for your illness?
1: My parents were always in my corner. So I get choked up when I say that because not everyone has that. So they always believe me. Um, they always stood by me. Yeah, yeah, I'm very, very, very fortunate. Had the best parents in the world.
0: Why don't you talk to us about your friends? Did you have challenges keeping friends in your life at that time?
1: You know, I it, it was kind of everyone noticed. <laughs> like, why are you always sick? Like, what, do you have AIDS or something? You know, so of course I got tested for that, which I didn't. Yeah, you know, I mean, but it wasn't really isolating. It was just more like, you know, the usual, like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you always sick?
0: And clearly you were able to maintain a healthy romantic relationship because you were, you began to share with us that you and your husband were talking about having children. So why don't you talk to us about what impact your illness was having on your fiance and then your husband during the course of your relationship together?
1: I guess he was basically just like everyone else. Like you're just always sickly and whatever. Who knows? She has allergies. That's basically That's what the people who love me always say. Well, she has allergies.
0: Well, but there were things that you couldn't do, April, that I think any romantic partner would want from a partner. Did he ever complain to you about your inability to go out or do some of the things that uh, the two of you would have wanted to do together?
1: Yeah. Yeah, he did.
0: But he's a good guy and he put up with it. and, uh,
1: and
0: (laughs) And now you and he are to the point where you're about to have a child, but I, want, I, I still wanna explore one more thing with you before we get to the decision to have the child. You now know that there were a number of different events that were happening that were allowing your Lyme disease to develop more aggressively than it had before. So you were taking steroids and they were immunosuppressant. and you, you were describing how Lyme, the Lyme bacteria also is immunosuppressant. Can you share with us in, in plain speak not in scientific speak, how that works. How does the Lyme bacteria compromise your immune system?
1: It just tricks these things called toll-like receptors into basically ignoring the signal that there's a pathogen present.
0: So April, I now want you to go back in time to when you and your husband and your doctors were discussing your first pregnancy and your, your decision to go forward with your first pregnancy. Can you share with us how all of these events are now coming together? You've been taking immunosuppressant drugs for many years. You have the Lyme bacteria, which is of course suppressing your your immune system. And now you're about to make the decision to have a baby. Can you share with us how that decision was made and what input you took from other people?
1: Sure. So um, I just want to pause here really quickly and and leave some science in the record here. Lyme spirochetes, you know, sometimes people think they're just a bacteria and that if you take some antibiotics, you know, you should be just fine. And there are some very special things about spirochetes I want to make sure people understand. First of all, Sparacheids have a double membrane, they're a double membrane bacteria with periplasmic space between the two membranes, capable of pumping out antibiotics before they permeate the inner membrane. So the double membrane make these very difficult organisms to kill, especially when they become deeply rooted in someone's body, like someone like myself, that was misdiagnosed or inadequately or improperly treated at the beginning of the illness.
0: Let's take the science out of that in the scientific language that you're using. So essentially you have a cell that has two walls, an outside mm-hmm. wall and an inside wall, and it's very yes. difficult to kill the bacteria because of the structure of the cell walls. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, and also because there's, in between the two cell walls is something called periplasmic space, which has proton pumps. And these proton pumps, Can they can pump out antibiotics out of the outer membrane before it gets to the inner sanctum of the germ to kill it. So it's very much
0: like a castle with a moat around it, and you you have to get over that moat, and that moat is a special moat where it has a special pump inside of it that will push the antibiotics out of the bacteria. Is that the way you're describing it?
1: Yes, yes. And I love your analogy. That's, that's exactly what it is. It's like a castle with a moat. And so the moat is the periplasmic space that makes it extra hard to get into the castle, which would be the Borrelia spirochete to kill it.
0: So now can you talk a little bit about the second the second piece of information you're trying to share, which is now if this uh, bacteria is embedded in your body in different ways, the way it had been for you for decades, why does that make it more difficult to treat the illness with antibiotics?
1: So, so that, that's why I bring it up at this point. Cause you, you know, even the, the doctors who had treated me to this point, especially the doctor who said, go ahead and get pregnant. He said, there's just no way that you're still infected. We've just thrown every antibiotic in the kitchen sink or in the Merck manual, you know, at you. How how could you possibly still be sick? You're imagining this smell of rotting flesh inside your nose. You're imagining this miasma. We've nicked a nerve and, you know, you there's nothing really wrong with you. You just imagine this bad smell. But, but it, it can persist and, you know, These spirochetes are pleomorphic organisms. So pleomorphic means that it doesn't just take one or two forms. It can take many forms, a granular form, a biofilm form, a motile corkscrew form, a cyst form, a dormant form. So these different forms of state of being for these these particular, not really bacteria, they're spirochetes they change they also change the arrangement of the outer surface proteins to evade immune recognition. and that can be found you know on the uh, PubMed website and different scientific peer reviewed articles in that it's constantly shuffling the way it presents itself to your immune system. So that's why these particular organisms are called relapsing fever organisms. That's why people will be having a Lyme flare or they're relapsing because their immune system gets a hold of the situation by recognizing the outer surface proteins and the arrangement thereof. And then they form an adequate antibody response and the immune system gets a hold of it. But what the spirochete will eventually do is switch around some of these outer surface proteins and trick the immune system. And that's when you get the fevers and the rashes and the flu-like illness all over again. Is because your immune, it's brand new to your immune system. So it's like a spirochete walks into a bar and the, b- and the bouncer goes, who are you? And he's like, I was just here last night. And the bouncer says, I don't recognize you. Well, that's because the immune system doesn't recognize it anymore once it has changed shape. Now, the third thing is that it's an organism that sheds triacyl lipoproteins, also known as pam molecules, also known as fungal antigens. And this is also something that can be found on PubMed and in, there's one scientific article that says, indeed, mounting evidence suggests that the adaptive immune response is suppressed during B burgdorferi infection. So, but there's actually proof in different studies that both the adaptive and the innate immune systems can be suppressed during these infections. So, I've got these very difficult to kill organisms. I've been treated over and over, but somehow we're just not really getting them eradicated. And all along, my immune system is being suppressed by steroids. Because you would think, and especially all these doctors, they thought, oh, you can't possibly be sick anymore. But the problem was, is that I still was sick and I was buying into their baloney and I went ahead and got pregnant. And after I got pregnant, the immune system suppression that happens naturally during pregnancy created an even bigger problem because I really started to fall apart physically. And I went to a doctor that did a nasal swab. And when he swabbed my nose, um, they called me back into the office when the results came in. And I said, this is very, very serious. You have sepsis. You've grown out five different serious pathogenic bacteria, uh, one of which being Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a nosocomial necrotizing bacteria, which is fancy talk for hospital acquired flesh-eating bacteria. So this is where the smell in my nose came from. So all along, I actually wasn't imagining it, it was there. So at this time, I'm just about headed to my second trimester. I've been extremely ill for weeks, And I get transferred into high risk pregnancy at Stony Brook. And so I go in and I meet with the obstetrician and it's a very solemn meeting with my lab reports. And the obstetrician says to me, look, you're very, very sick. I'm sorry to tell you this, but, you know, you've just crossed over into your second trimester. We can no longer give you the medication that you need that will save your life because you have sepsis and you could die you know, you, you and your husband can make another baby, but we can't make another you. And I was like, are you suggesting I have an abortion? And he's like, well, we can't guarantee that if you took the medication that would help you get better, that it wouldn't harm the baby. So I just burst out laughing. It was the most inappropriate thing at the moment. And, and I could have sworn that, uh, you know, doctor, the doctor who was saying this to you, you know, almost fell over in his chair. I think he thought I was absolutely crazy because he looks at me laughing my head off. And I just said, wait a minute. Once I caught my breath, I said, let me get this straight. For about 10 years now, I've been telling doctors that I feel like I I'm sick and I'm dying. I said, I finally get pregnant. And now you tell me I'm sick and I'm dying and I should probably get an abortion because I need to take all this medication. And, you know, some politically correct answer followed, to which I replied, you know what? I've made it this far. If we die, we die together. But I'm not having an abortion.
0: So, April, how did it make you feel that you were failed at the most extreme level by doctors, starting from your childhood? Your childhood, you were failed by doctors. During your adolescence, you were failed by doctors. In your early adult life, you were failed by doctors. And now you, your husband, and your baby have been failed by doctors. How did that make you feel?
1: It was par for the course. It's actually what I had come to expect. I just it I guess you you know you can either choose to be angry or or not i guess I guess what it did was it made me it made me highly educated because i've I've learned to be my own doctor, so um I've learned not to trust what other people tell me because that was that was pretty much the ultimate snafu there you know well, a pregnant woman
0: <laughs> but it but it almost sounds like it was also a moonstruck moment for you where you were finally slapped in the face and you came to the conclusion you're not mentally ill you're physically sick and now you're going to go down a path where you're going to be your own doctor you're going to be your own advocate is that what happened there
1: pretty much, although it actually took a couple more years of being sick um, to really get to that point. But, you know, at that point, it was a bit of validation. Uh, I think that was the tip of the iceberg, really. You know, but it was kind of like, you guys don't know anything, really. That's what, at that moment, I was like, if you think that I'm going to die now, after feeling this way for 10 years, I just don't buy it. That's why I was like, no, I'm not having an abortion. I'm, I'm going to roll with this and see what happens because I basically don't trust what you people say at all now.
0: So how did your pregnancy progress and how did your illness progress as your pregnancy was progressing?
1: It was hell. It was absolute hell. I can't even begin to convey, you know, just making it through each day was a Herculean effort. I spent a lot of time with a neti pot because I had to keep flushing like the dead flesh out of my nose. So um, I just kept rinsing and rinsing and rinsing and rinsing. It was bad.
0: How how was your husband during this period of your relationship? Supportive. Was he in pain? I mean, what, what what was he, you know, how was he feeling? How was he reacting to everything that was going on?
1: Well, you know, you get to a level of callousness, you know, because you're like, you've got someone you love saying, you know, I smell rotting flesh (laughs) inside my nose, and you have doctors saying, no, you don't. So it becomes a state of opting out, of talking about it, opting out, of thinking, because they don't know what to think. So they're just like, I love you, and I'm going to support you but I can't make sense of what you're going through. So I'm just gonna support you and love you and you're kinda on your own with the whole doctor's sickness thing.
0: So now you hadn't been diagnosed with Lyme disease up to this point, is that correct? Correct, still wasn't. So how did, how did the pregnancy progress and when did your Lyme diagnosis finally surface?
1: Years later, pregnancy was horrible, beyond horrible. And I basically was never adequately treated for that pseudomonas infection. They told me I was colonized, and that you know basically it was just something that was going to always be in my body.
0: And, ha- and how did she do during the pregnancy? Were there any complications for her during your pregnancy?
1: No, nope. God is good. She d- she did have an immune system um, abnormality that did cause problems later on, especially when it comes to vaccines, because her adaptive immune response, as is expected per, you know, scientific peer-reviewed journal articles, that there was, you know, an abnormality that did cause difficulties for her, you know, being sick and, uh, and such. But she's doing pretty good now. So, so I also continued to have Lyme, and I had another tick bite during my second pregnancy. That time I was bitten by a Lone Star tick in a parking lot, of all places, I was in the Long Island University parking lot in Riverhead. So at this point, my daughter had had some pretty serious adverse vaccine reactions. And of course, you're pretty much told, oh, you're imagining that, that's
0: not what that is. I'm sorry, Abel, could you just share with us whether or not that was during your your daughter's infancy?
1: Yes. Well, of course, that's when they vaccinate the hell out of kids. But they also, you
0: know, one of the things we've seen a lot of is the immunosuppressant effects of the HPV virus vaccine and and how that triggers uh, Lyme, dormant Lyme in a lot of young people. So I'm just trying to get a sense of where we are in your daughter's life.
1: So the way that some vaccines work is that they are called conjugate vaccines. Conjugate vaccines are when the adaptive immune response triggers an innate immune response. You know, most people don't know that babies are born, you know, with innate immunity and that the adaptive immune response doesn't even develop until about age two. So the theory is, is to vaccinate them early. Unfortunately, in some cases, the immune system is not up to the challenge. And so uh, this is what had happened. I'd rather really not go into it because I don't want to cry, but it was, it was horrible. Uh, And so, and of course, as I said, you're pretty much told, yeah, you're imagining that it's not because of the vaccine. It must be something else, which, you know, I guess in part is true. She was born with Lyme, but we didn't know that until much later. So, I decided to do what I did last time, which was go to college and learn some more. So I went back to college and got a Master of Education, and I also had additional uh, year of studying students with disabilities, because after a vaccine, my daughter lost multiple milestones and developed some um, developmental disabilities. So I wanted to figure out how does that process mature? In children, what triggers those things, and um, what is normal, what is not normal, and I decided that the best way to learn what was going on was to become a master of uh, childhood development, and so that is what I did, and um, I eventually learned that, you know, the difficulties were due to being born with Lyme and being vaccinated.
0: So now you said that you were bitten a second time by now a Lone Star tick when you were pregnant for your second time. How did the Lone Star tick bite affect you and where are you in your diagnostic journey? Have you yet to be diagnosed with Lyme disease despite now being bitten by a third tick to your knowledge and you are managing your second pregnancy?
1: Yeah, no. So no, I was not, and during that tick bite, I ended up in the hospital because I became very, very sick, and my diagnosis was just um, encephalopathy, so I had swelling of my brain stem and of my brain. I was really unable to function for a while. Um, I was given some amoxicillin and told, good luck, you're pregnant, so (laughs) you're going to just have to uh, deal with it. So I just kind of, uh, it was, again, you know, just a really long, sick pregnancy, a really rough time. And pretty much the same result, like a child with, born with common variable immunodeficiency and um, who had, you know, severe, frightening, adverse vaccine reactions. So
0: you have your first child and she is facing some challenges with what you now know to be Lyme disease. You have your second child who is now born again, suffering from the the Lyme disease, when do you finally get to the point where you understand that you have Lyme disease and it's being transmitted to your children during your pregnancies?
1: When my father died from Lyme carditis.
0: And when was that? How long after your second child was born?
1: About eight years, I guess. So now you go forward
0: another eight years and your, your children are sick, you're still sick, and yep. you're seeing doctors, all of you are seeing doctors. And are any of your doctors suspecting that you're suffering from Lyme disease? And are any of them testing you for Lyme disease?
1: So, you know, when, at some point, yeah, I'm not testing positive. So I'm not making the CDC criteria. But then again, I'm only getting indirect testing. So the testing is deeply flawed. Some estimates have it at about 65% accuracy for the enzyme-linked immunoabsorbent assay, the ELISA, which is the screening test, which I basically never made criteria on that. And then the Western blot is also an indirect test, and you're supposed to make five bands positive, which I never made that criteria. The only criteria I ever did make was an IgM Positive, so the the five bands positive IgG, so that is either current or past infection. IgM is generally considered to be a current infection, and you have to have two out of three bands, and that's the only test that I've ever made the CDC criteria for being positively diagnosed with with Lyme disease.
0: Now, but we know that the testing is just an aid; that there there are a number of different diagnostic tools that can be used to ultimately diagnose someone with Lyme disease. And you had so many of the criteria, just from what you described on this podcast, Where any doctors making a clinical diagnosis of Lyme disease even though you weren't meeting the CDC criteria for the two-tier test?
1: Yeah, I, I would say if you need a clinical diagnosis of Lyme, you need to get off Long Island. They don't diagnose Lyme clinically here, not in my experience. Not in my experience personally, and not in my experience with pretty much anyone I know.
0: You, you've you been bitten now by ticks on three separate occasions. You had a rash. Uh, you've had all of the classic symptoms of Lyme disease, and none of the many doctors that you're seeing are willing to give you a clinical diagnosis for Lyme disease because you were not meeting the CDC standard on the two-tier test. Is that correct? That's correct. hmm So you're now continuing to go forward with pursuing your your life and you're raising your children and you're dealing with all the challenges in the way that you always do. You go back to school, you gain an education and you overcome the challenges on your own despite what you're being told by the medical community. And now your dad dies. How does that affect your diagnosis with uh, Lyme disease?
1: Well, that, so that was really the game changer was my father because I was, <sighs> you know, I was, I was willing to accept medical abuse for myself, but not for him. So um, when it came to, you know, him just getting sicker and sicker and me going, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Why isn't anybody helping him? What's going on here? It turns out that in the middle of all of this, I was substitute teaching at a school in, in uh, Riverhead, and I met a little boy, and it, really uh, ended up changing a lot of things in my life. I feel like everything happens for a reason. And when I met this child, I was doing some special ed word work with a small group of boys. And as children normally do with a substitute teacher, of course, you know, they were evaluating me. Are we going to behave for you? Are we going to learn for you? Do we like you? And um, this one little boy was specifically really, really, checking me out and deciding whether or not he was going to confide in me. And as we walked back to the classroom, he held my hand. He decided he was going to hold my hand and talk to me and ask me questions about my life, which I answered. "Do you have any kids? Are you married?" And he goes, "You know, I have Lyme disease." And I'm like, "Oh, that's too bad, you know." And at that point, I'm I'm actually in remission is what you call it when you're not having Lyme s- symptoms. And I'm like, "Oh, that's that's terrible, you know." And he goes, yeah, you know, and he begins to launch into this well-rehearsed, amazingly articulate speech detailing his somatic complaints. The kid blew me away. He was so thorough and it was such a long list about how he had trouble sleeping and he had the, the pains in his shins and that they told him it was growing pains, but that he knows that ever since he got bitten by that tick, that all his headaches and all this and that and all these stomach problems and all the things that was wrong with him all started with when he had Lyme disease. And everyone told him that it was gone, but that he knew that it wasn't gone. I can't tell you how much that kid's testimony just touched me. We got back to the room and I looked down at him and I had to catch a sob in my throat. And I, I didn't know what else to do other than to just confirm, like to just validate his experience. So I just said, I am so sorry that you've had to go through all this. <laughs> I said, but I don't know how to help you. I said, I'm only a substitute teacher. I said, even if I walked you down to the nurse and I told the nurse that I believe you, she might not believe me. But if she believed us and she called her, your parents, your parents might not believe us. But even if your parents believed us, we might go to the doctor and the doctor might not believe all of us. I'm like, I just... I'm so sorry. I said, and I just, I believe you. I don't know what else to say. I wish I could help you. And that day, when I, I just sat in my car and I cried for that kid, I cried and I said a prayer and I said, God, if I can help this kid, if I can help this kid or any other kids like him, please use me. I'll, I will do this. And, um, and lo and behold, like a week later, I answered an ad to develop an educational curriculum. And that's when I met Brian Kelly and he and I worked on a curriculum to teach children tick bite safety and awareness. And in the process of learning all that, I ended up looking at my dad's symptoms and I said, well, hallelujah. This is it. Talk about a clinical diagnosis. I clinically diagnosed. I said, This is ridiculous. This is exactly what he's going through. And so, in the process of becoming the tick lady and becoming the president of this nonprofit, I said, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about ticks. And when you start to learn about ticks, you learn about Lyme. And then, once I, I said, Well, you know, what's the fastest way to learn all this stuff? I'll watch a few videos. And I ended up watching a movie called Under Our Skin, and that movie changed my life. That was the aha moment, was Under Our Skin. Andy Abrams, I believe his name is, is the uh, producer and uh, director, was Chris Newby. I may have that switched around, but uh, Chris Newby just wrote the book Bitten, which is amazing. Brilliant book. Yeah, it is. And uh, but that movie, that movie changed my life. And I in that movie is a very brilliant man named Dr. Alan McDonald. Now Alan McDonald was the chief of pathology for I think almost a decade in Southampton Hospital in the 90s. He worked with Dr. Joe Burascano and several others, and they developed this silver staining method for directly observing Borrelia in coat peripheral blood smears. So this was a direct method of testing. So you were no longer looking for the evidence of the crime, you were looking for the criminal himself.
0: You meet with Mr. Kelly, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Mr. Kelly and what he was seeking to do with the curriculum <laughs> you were developing and how that became part of your mission for becoming the tick lady and, and working with the not So let's build that out first, and then we'll get to, we'll get to the, the new testing. How did you find the ad, and what caused you to respond to the ad that ultimately resulted in you developing this new relationship?
1: So that was God. And God, you know, God uses people to do his work. So I just happened to, it said, you know, it was like an ad for a substitute teacher. And it was just an idea that he had. You know and who, and, and who is so, he, and,
0: and what, and why did he want to develop the curriculum?
1: So Brian Kelly is the uh, president and owner of East End Tick and Mosquito Control and Twin Forks Pest Control.
0: And what what caused him to be moved to hire a teacher to develop a curriculum for children?
1: Brian is a really, really good-hearted person, and he you know, in his travels and, and doing what he does, he, he met multiple people who use his service who had chronic Lyme disease. And of course, you know, people who have chronic Lyme are chronically disenfranchised, especially here on Long Island. So, you know, statistics have, the, the stats are right around 80-20. So about 80% of the people who get Lyme go on to get better. And about 20% of the people who get it and get treated go on to be chronically ill. And Brian had seen enough people chronically ill and suffering that he felt like the best thing to do was to team up with someone who was a teacher and, you know, create a nonprofit to teach children to avoid the situation altogether.
0: And what is the name of the nonprofit that you and Brian created together? It's tick-wise education. So now we have another arc in your life. I mean, you have had so many lives during the short period of time that you've been on this earth. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you, went from, you went from a musical path where you were a professional singer, and then you went on to a path where you were developing information and training to be a psychologist, and then you went on to another path where you were developing tools to become a teacher. And now you're on this not-for-profit path in this very interesting niche. And I think that's a really beautiful part of the arc of your story now, where you've been suffering from Lyme disease without knowing it for almost all of your life. Your children are suffering from Lyme disease. You are now coming in contact with students who have Lyme disease, and now you're going to do something about it. And please share with us how that presented itself.
1: So, so when, when I started to develop the curriculum, you know, as I said, I just, I learned, I learned all everything about ticks and then that led me to learn about Lyme. And then once I learned about, uh, you know, once I saw that video under our skin, I was convinced that that's what was wrong with my father. My father at this time was really sick. And he's one of those people who had Lyme, who had a bullseye rash on his leg, Uh, who was treated with three weeks of antibiotics and who failed to do what he was supposed to do, which is get better and not have any more problems with it. So unfortunately, he kept asking for more antibiotics. He was told you don't have Lyme. Um, He actually, you know what, he did get a clinical diagnosis. That was a very good PA that was working in that office that that saw he had four out of five bands, but he had all the symptoms and he clinically diagnosed them because I I have all my dad's records. So I do eventually want to write a book with all this stuff. But yeah, he got a clinical diagnosis, but then he got the three weeks and was told, okay, you're, you're fine. And if you still don't feel well, it's something else. So he had something else for a long, long time and he was very sick, and each year he would get sicker, and he developed cardiac arrhythmias, and he went from being an ocean lifeguard, New York State champion wrestler, health teacher for 30 years, to having being forced to retire due to cardiac issues, to going on medication that didn't work, to having an ablation that didn't work to having open heart surgery that didn't work. And when I say it didn't work, I mean that it failed to correct his arrhythmia. Then he got a pacemaker, which believe it or not, didn't really work. <laughs> it was barely passable, you know, the ability of the pacemaker to keep his heart in rhythm because he still had arrhythmia and he was on all kinds of medication. And then finally his heart started to give out. So they installed a the defibrillator. And he still, he had Lyme spirochetes in his heart. So he had cardiac Lyme and was just never properly diagnosed with what was actually going on. He was just taken from drug to drug, pulling at straws, treating symptoms, performing surgeries, and it never fixed the problem. He he died. I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks. So that was, it was very polarizing, um, you know, to decide, I guess, to stop just taking the abuse and just kind of being like, oh, well, you know, that stinks. Uh, it must be my fault somehow to saying, this stinks. <laughs> Somebody needs to do something about it. You know, so I, I started at least to to do something about it as far as, as educating other people and saying, hey, you know, this is a serious problem, and, and you can't treat these tick bites as if it's just a regular bug bite. You know, sometimes these tick bites can change your entire life in the course of your life and can even take your life if you're not careful. You know, if you happen to be one of those people who gets Lyme carditis... You know, even the CDC acknowledges, uh, in fact, that was the determining factor for the CDC to say you have to make a clinical diagnosis because not everyone's going to test positive on these serological indirect tests. And if you miss the Lyme carditis, you know, they had three people that were basically in their 30s die of Lyme carditis, which, of course, was found out postmortem, you know, via laboratory pathology. So, ever, one of the things that you've discovered, by
0: personal experience, was that the two-tier test doesn't work, and you began to explain to us that there's another test that's been developed in part by Dr. Scano, who is a uh, former clinician from uh, from New York. Can you share with us how you decided that you are going to now do some additional research on testing, so that that will not be another failure point in the um, Lyme disease journey that the people you were hoping to protect would not have to face?
1: So. The the testing for for Lyme disease currently is abysmal. Now, I can't vet these comments. I can only say that these were conversations that I had with people, and they would have to be independently vetted. However, from what I understand, Borrelia can take up to five different uh, DNA sequences. So when you're testing for Lyme disease using your basic you know, uh, insurance paid for laboratories out here on the east end of Long Island, you're testing for one genetic combination amongst five. Also add to that, there are 300 species of Borrelia worldwide. I believe there are 12 in the United States that can cause human infection. Um, depending on what sites you look at, the number changes. But the person that told me 12, I thought that sounded pretty accurate. Um, they cause human infection. So when you're testing for Borrelia burgdorferi, you're not going to pick up Borrelia mayoni, Borrelia lone stari, afzeli, gareni. Um, there's different strains. Here on Long Island, what my dad had was Miyamotoi. So my dad had Borrelia burgdorferi and Borrelia Miyamotoi, which would never be showing up on the insurance paid for test because they're indirect tests looking serologically for an immunological response that is sufficient to leave a stain dark enough on that Western blot. So what I had done after watching the under our skin film was I contacted Dr. Alan McDonald and I wrote him a heartfelt letter saying, basically my father is dying. No one believes that he has Lyme. He's been saying he has Lyme for a long time, and I can't get him any help because I feel like I don't have any proof of this. Can you please help me? And being the sweet, kind, loving person that Dr. Alan McDonald is, he said, send me your father's blood, and I will examine it for free. And so we went to a doctor in East Hampton who ordered Buffy coat peripheral blood smears, We went to Southampton Hospital, and the laboratory prepared the smears, and I sent them to Dr. McDonald, and Dr. McDonald examined them and sent me back results that said my father had a heavy concentration of spirochetes in his blood, and that he was testing positive for both Borrelia burgdorferi and Borrelia miyamotoi. And the name of the test that that, uh, my father had done is called a FISH test. So FISH stands for fluorescence-in-situ hybridization mode using molecular beacon probes. So um, it sounds complicated, but it's really not. Uh, The molecular beacon probes are a reagent um, that you spread onto the Buffy co-peripheral blood smears, and if it's the right combination, it will zip up, hybridize, and light up, fluoresce under a microscope. And then depending on what color you've added, to the reagent, so in this case, it fluoresced green for the Bergdorferi, and it fluoresced, I believe he used yellow for the Mymo2i. And what was really interesting about my father's blood was that these Borrelia were forming genetic hybrids inside of him. So they were fluorescing and hybridizing on one side with the green and fluorescing and hybridizing on the other side with the yellow. So they were making literally genetic chimeras. So if you were looking for an immunological response, you would never ever find it using a regular indirect method. You can only find this uh, with a direct method of imaging and, and direct method of blood study, which is what we have the photographs and we have you know the reports from Dr. McDonald. Now, why
0: wouldn't the traditional test have found your father's Lyme disease?
1: Well, because it checks for genetic combinations. So that's what I was saying earlier about how I was told by someone that I feel is a credible resource that Borrelia um has five different genetic combinations that it can express. So if you're only using one. So most or at least, you know, the most used lab out here uses the B31 genetic combination of Borrelia Dorfry, which I find very amusing or not so amusing in that it's a strain of Borrelia that's never even been proven to infect a human being. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like when you say something, think about that, you're like, what? But yeah, that's what they're using. So um, there are better tests. Um, Igenex Labs out of California does much better tests. Um, they use multiple strains of Borrelia, um, Borrelia, you know, eye Garini, F. L. I., Garene, I Feli, um, Lone Stari, Berodurferi. So they'll they'll mix up, you know, multiple combinations. So it's a, even though it's even though it's looking for an immune response, it's look it's casting the net wider. So the clinical definition or pathology definition of Lyme, you know, traditionally for the insurance paid for tests out here, the definition is so narrow that they're missing. This is just my estimation. They're missing probably half the people who are infected.
0: So, so April, the Igenex test, which we have heard about repeatedly on our podcast from guests from around the world, is still an indirect test. Are there any direct tests? I believe about-
1: they're developing one. And Igenex does have some fish tests, the fluorescence in-situ hybridization tests that are direct and they also use pcr which is which is polymerase chain reaction so they do they do some direct testing Um, you know it can be very difficult to catch these particular organisms which is why if people ask me for advice i tell them do not bother getting a blood test until you're symptomatic because they have a crest and a trough just like any wavelength, you know, you're going to have periods when it's really when it undergoes that antigenic variation. So when the immune system is, what's an
0: antigenic variation?
1: The antigenic variation is when it's switching the outer surface proteins. So it's like the girl that's trying to go into the bar, but she wears a wig and and contact, you know what I mean? Like it's tricking the immune system into it, it just shuffles its outer surface proteins so that, so that the immune system no longer has an antibody to fight that particular antigen, which means that that's why it's a relapsing fever organism, is that you'll, that's when you get the rashes and the fevers and all the flu-like illnesses, because now it's changed its sequence to something that the immune system doesn't recognize, and now you're sick all over again. And that's the moment to have your blood drawn. And I've tested that and it actually works. You can also use things to provoke a response um, like spirochetes love manganese. So if you eat a lot of foods high in manganese, like pineapple, you can sort of provoke a response to, you know, Legitimately, you're feeding your germs, though, which ultimately isn't that smart. I would say I, I prefer just waiting for that moment when you're you're relapsing and you know you're relapsing. That's the time to have the blood drawn. The 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 um spirochetes prefer to live in the endothelial tissue. They like to burrow down into like the lining of your blood vessels they don't really like to hang out in the blood. So you have to get the timing right. And I have lots of friends who, you know, are, are not, you know, novice microscopists who will tell me, you know, that they're not always there. They can be elusive. So you have to wait till you're really symptomatic if you want to catch them. No,
0: but l- let's stay there and examine that issue for a minute. So you're arguing that the, the immune system has to recognize the bacteria in order for the testing to identify the bacteria. Is that correct? You got it. That's only for the indirect tests. So what about the direct testing? If we, if we have a direct testing, and you and you listed a couple of types of direct testing, does it matter when you test if we're able to directly test for the existence of the bacteria?
1: Yes, yes, and I would say it's the same. It's the same thing. Wait until you're symptomatic because, again, the spirochetes prefer to live in the endothelial tissue. They prefer to burrow down into something. They don't like to hang out in the blood because the immune system you have, you know, all your immune complexes circulating in your blood, so it's not an ideal environment for them. The ideal environment for spirochetes and any germ, really, is immune privilege sites like the eyes. What is an
0: immune privilege site? Is that a place where your immune system is not active?
1: Exactly. Yep. So and in the blood, your blood your immune system is active in your blood. So this bacteria seems to be pretty
0: sophisticated.
1: It can reform
0: itself. It can go to places where the immune system doesn't exist. It can protect mm-hmm. itself from from the the drugs that we're using to try to kill it. It's a very sophisticated yep. bacteria.
1: Absolutely. They are absolutely very. You got it, <laughs> good student A plus. So, April, tell us how you
0: you and your children are doing. Today.
1: Well, we did uh, go and we we were able to get some treatment. Um, we did get some grant money from uh, Lyme Aid for Kids, so we were very grateful for that. Uh, I took the kids off Long Island to a uh, Lyme literate medical doctor and had them treated, and they made some pretty great strides during that time, um, moving away from chronic illness to more, you know, relaxing sort of stuff that happens. Uh, But they're, you know, they're doing okay. You know, and then I myself went up to see Dr. Daniel Cameron up in Mount Kisco, and he was the first he was the first person really to mend my broken heart honestly. He was the first person to look at me and say, "You're sick, you're not crazy, you're not imagining it." And I was so grateful. I think I cried the whole way home.
0: Now you found a doctor who has validated your 5 decades of illness and you found doctors <laughs> who are now helping your helping your children as well.
1: Yes. So and I did have the same test um that So Dr. McDonald was just really good to our family. He just performed those tests for us. So I was able to confirm everyone had it. Now, the,
0: the most so. recent arc in your life is you're now giving back, and you're giving back through your not-for-profit, and I want to share with our listeners that I actually went to one of your talks at the North Shore Public Library last summer, and it was absolutely brilliant. You were brilliant, and your talk was brilliant. And I thank I you. a great deal from you because of all that you're giving. So can you share with our listeners how this most recent arc in your life where you're now giving back and trying to educate people so that they can protect themselves from this very preventable disease has changed you?
1: I think, honestly, Rich, it was something that not only, you know, was it fate for me to get led into it, but that it was also therapy because I miss my dad every day and it's just a way of dealing with my grief to give back. And to
0: make sure no one else has to go through what your dad went through and what your family through. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. To, to warn people that yeah, this is, you know, this is a problem and, and you know, you can't, just, you can't just take things at face value. You know, if you're not okay, don't let anybody tell you that you're imagining it. Like, advocate for yourself. Believe in yourself. So let's talk about
0: your not-for-profit and some of the great work that you're doing there. Not just the presentations that you yourself are doing, but I understand that this past summer you put together a brilliant presentation with some of the leading line experts in the country. Can you share with our listeners what that program was about?
1: So I put together a tick-borne illness symposium with a couple of friends um, Jennifer Petricelli of the Long Island Aquarium and the Preston House and Hotel, my friend Jane Held of Verchampton Realty, and my friend L.J. Eggert from uh, Tickwise Sprays. And we were the event committee, and we got together Dr. Daniel Cameron, Dr. Joe Barascano, Dr. Robert Bransfield. Dr. Rosalie Greenberg and also we had authors come, um, Jenna Louche Thayer and Chris Newby had just released her new book and she came and, and spoke at the symposium as well.
0: Can you share with us what you collectively learned from all of these brilliant people who you brought to Long Island to present their perspective on Lyme and Tick diseases?
1: You know, it's just more validation that the testing is terrible. Um, <laughs> that you, you need, that, the, that we need a direct method of testing. Uh, you know, this indirect method of testing is just, it should not be the standard, especially in a place where doctors are very hesitant to give a clinical diagnosis. I mean, we really, above all things, need to develop an early, accurate test for Lyme disease. Uh, besides that, it's just, they just, you know, validated everything that I've learned. You know, Dr. Bransfield is brilliant and he spoke about mental illness as as a manifestation of Lyme's disease. Dr. Rosalie Greenberg validated and spoke about, you know, behavioral issues issues and learning difficulties in children who have tick-borne illnesses. Uh, Dr. Borascano spoke about um, getting a clinical diagnosis for Lyme. Dr. Cameron I just love him. He talked about, you know, cherry picking and lemon dropping, and about how you know doctors will try to get rid of patients that they can't get better because, you know, us chronic line patients are very unpopular. So I've been lemon dropped by many offices. Uh, very demoralizing, by the way. And uh, and then Jenna Lush Thayer was part of the ad hoc committee for updating the ICD uh, diagnosis codes. That's the International Classification of Diseases. And the ICD-11 now contains uh, 14 codes for Borreliosis, whereas I believe there were only three or four previously. Um, There was one more, which was um, congenital Lyme Lyme Borreliosis. It was 1C1G.2. And um, that was taken out without due process by the Public Health Service of Canada, pretty much without any hearings, without any input from the scientific community. They deleted a code. So that was pretty disturbing. But her book is called Slime, and the S is a dollar sign, L-Y-M-E. And that's Jenna Lush Thayer. And she does a great job of talking about why this is a global problem and how uh, the United States pretty much made the case definition and the diagnosis of Lyme so narrow that, you know, there are people around the world being excluded from proper care and treatment.
0: So that's very depressing that not only are we failing, but we're exporting our failures.
1: Yes. Yes, we are. Absolutely. But they're having much more success in other places. It, you know, since uh, the United States, has, that was the genesis of the problem, which goes back to an event in Dearborn, Michigan, you know, where the case definition of Lyme disease was made so narrow that it was very difficult to, um, you know, get everyone diagnosed properly, which is a whole other podcast. <laughs> I can give you the name and number of someone who'd be happy to elucidate that. Um, but anyway, yes, we have, we exported our failures around the globe. Um, there's people suffering around the world, but you know, Jenna's been very active and she's been very, she's a wonderful activist. She worked for the uh, United Nations or the World Health World Health Organization, I think. And she goes around and she, you know, speaks and educates And different countries are, are having more success than we are having here on enlightening the local medical communities as to how much of a problem Borreliosis really is and how it is the ideology, the, the root cause of many illnesses that are, you know, like mine you know oh i had irritable bowel and fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and depression well at the at the etiology at the basis of all those things was the spirochetal infection and so we we unfortunately have become part of a medical community where You know, doctors no longer look for the etiology. They don't look for the base of the problem. They look for a biologic to treat it. So they're just basically writing prescriptions to treat symptoms, but they never look for or deal with the root cause of the problem. So now, April, I want to bring this back to you. Now that you've had a
0: chance to speak with us about a 40 or 50 year journey that you've been on, can you point out one person who has been with you the whole way? that if you hadn't had that person, your experience would not have been as fruitful as it's been.
1: My mom. My mom. <laughs> everything I needed to try, everything I needed a ride to go to after I had a stroke from my Lyme disease, sorry, my Lyme disease, and I couldn't drive and I could barely speak.
0: You're, you're blessed to have <laughs> that wonderful woman in your life and you're, you're blessed to have the parents that you had. And we, we've unfortunately not always had Podcast guests that have had that same experience, and thank God for your mom, and thank God for your dad, and thank God for the support they've given you. Yeah, now I have another question. Yeah, if you had to point to one particular tool that you use during your tick disease journey that you'd want others to know about, what is that tool?
1: So, I use an amp coil, I use a pulsed electromagnetic field generator. That increases microcellular respiration and helps alleviate pain and uh, upregulate energy.
0: And now I have one last question for you. If tomorrow morning, God forbid you woke up and you looked over your husband and he had a tick biting him on his leg, what would- Oh my
1: God. (laughs) Well, first of all, I would remove the tick properly, okay, using tick tweezers i being very careful not to squeeze it or agitate the tick to go in with precision um, with my big glasses on and pull that tick out, you know, by the mouth, right by the head parts, pull it out, put it into a plastic baggie and mail it out to, hmm, I, you know, I think you could take your pick. I mean, there's many of them. There's um, tickcheck.com, tickreport.com, Technology um also igenex also tests ticks so i would definitely i would probably use igenex just because i think they're great i would probably send the tick off to igenex find out what's in it and then just uh do a lot of praying (laughs) for him i probably would try some prophylactic herbs perhaps some colloidal silver i would definitely wipe the tick bite with iodine iodine is far more effective than any peroxide or alcohol or anything else you can put on a tick bite. Um, that's why people wash get washed with iodine before surgery, because it kills everything, you know, all pathogens. So I would definitely dress it with some iodine, put some antibiotic ointment on it, and keep a really close eye on them.
0: And what would you be looking for when you were keeping your close eye on them?
1: Fatigue, headaches you know that's the thing about you know that's what makes a clinical diagnosis so difficult and you can't really be too hard on doctors because you know the system is not really working with them as far as Lyme goes and and you know each person manifests illness uh, differently you know some people get extreme joint pains some people get stomach aches um, some people get headaches so you know it really depends on your personal genetics and your makeup how you're going to manifest illness but in general you want to look for headache uh, joint pain definitely any rashes that show up you should be taking photographs of and journaling you know changes in personality insomnia a lot of different things, just changes in general, keeping a journal and looking for changes.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with April Nil boytano To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about April Nil boytano and her not-for-profit, please visit the TickWise Facebook page at TickWise Education, Inc. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a TickBite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your you, listeners for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.